HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about the coldest, darkest season. We start in a California vineyard. It's cold, but it's wet, and things are still alive. There's a lot of life in this soil. We explore two frontiers of cocktail culture— luxury ice, and the rise of non-alcoholic drinks. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. And we investigate the risks facing New York City delivery workers during the harsh winter. In the wintertime, after two hours of biking, it's quite easy, actually, for the bikes to sting upside down or slips or slide. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, for some food for thought to sustain you through the dead of winter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. I'm lucky to be joined by three guests this week, two semi-locally and one across an ocean in a manner completely apropos to the book we're discussing today. Food Across Borders is a collection of stories that was edited by Matt Garcia, Melanie Dupuy, and Don Mitchell. But enough from me, I'll let you three introduce yourselves. Matt, why don't you start? Hi, I'm Matt Garcia. I'm in Vermont. This is Melanie Dupuy, and I'm in uh, New York. And this is Don Mitchell. I'm in Sweden. I should add one more. Um, could you three, in addition to your location, talk about the culinary borders that you are navigating in your day-to-day? So uh, this is Matt. Uh, I am living very close to the Canadian border after living uh, extremely close to the Arizona-Mexico border. Um, we live in both places. I, I worked at Arizona State when uh, we were editing this book, putting it together, and now I'm at Dartmouth College. Um, in, bo- in both places, uh, we're within a border region that is um, surveilled by the um, by ICE, um, by Homeland Security, and uh, so it's it's an odd thing to um, move from one end of the country to the other and yet have a very similar experience mm-hmm. um, in Arizona. Farm workers there uh, were constantly surveilled, and then here it's mostly dairy workers that are now being picked up and detained and then deported by ICE. 
And this is Don Mitchell in Uppsala, Sweden. Uh, I moved uh, from upstate New York, where I was uh, editing the book at the time, uh, to Sweden a couple of years ago. And now I'm figuring out a rather different set of uh, food borders, borders between the Scandinavian countries and the rest of Europe, between Europe and <clears throat> North Africa and the Middle East, and maybe between the land masses and the oceans, particularly the Arctic Ocean, which is a primary food source for this area and under deep threat. And, and this is Melanie Dupuis, and um, I've moved to New York from uh, Washington, D.C. And like, so as you can see, we're all academics, and academics tend to be gypsies who are you know, thinking about notions of home in, in different ways. And, um, and, and it's interesting that D.C. is very much a uh, a southern food and soul food area, and uh, you know New York. I you know New York City is all sorts of different cultures, and um, I I work in uh, downtown uh, Manhattan, which has um, you know, Chinatown and um, the uh, Lower East Side um, and Latino culture and all sorts of. Uh, Jewish culture and all of those, uh, all, all of those cultures, kind of from one block to the next. Mm -hmm. So the intro paragraph to the introduction of Food Across Borders, which is the book, um, I felt could act as a mission statement for what Meant to Be Eaten is trying to achieve. And so um, I want to just break down even the first sentence, which is eating is a border crossing. What does this mean, and how is this so? Uh, so this is Matt. Um, from my point of view, this is what I brought to the, the pro, um, project. I, I had been working on farm workers in the West and um, noting that um, the, the farmers that uh, grew lettuce, grew grapes, um, grew a variety of, of crops, uh, particularly in California where I'm from, really depended on um, the immigrant labor. It was often called unskilled labor. But it was, um, if you actually look at the work and evaluate it, highly skilled, highly necessary. Um, that work was done by members of my family going back three generations. And uh, coming up to the present, um, it was even more dependent on that immigrant labor. So what I was trying to do is draw our attention to the fact that in a world where we're celebrating the local, uh, that we're um, castigating those that are uh, drawing um, their food from a global uh, network, that in fact, um, we've always been dependent on uh, border crossers for the food that we eat. And like Matt, uh, I'm quite interested in the questions of farm labor. I also grew up in California. Uh, and yet, I'm, uh, he's a historian, I'm a geographer. And as a geographer, one of the things that interested me most in thinking about this project is the way that as interested as we may be in questions of local food and so forth, there's actually no such thing. Uh, and there can be no such thing. Foods have been traded forever. Uh, and uh, you know, the very domestication of food uh, required the movement of peoples. Uh, and so all of those kind of questions of movement and location and uh, how they come together in something as simple as an orange or a lemon has always intrigued me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm a sociologist, and when uh, Matt first said, asked me to be part of this book, I said, you know, I, I don't, I'm not someone who deals with 
directly with immigration, I'm really a food sociologist. And he's like, no, no, you're absolutely a, a, a person who should be part of this book. And uh, when I started thinking about it, that yes, the border, for me, the border is the mouth. And, uh, and I sort of think of it as from as a sort of a political sociologist in terms of, you know, sort of the ideas about what is the inside and what is the outside and how um, uh, the, the, the definition of the outside can is, is so often um, performed through food. So mm-hmm. what you choose to put inside your body is part of who you are, where you belong, what you what you feel like. What you see as home um, and what you decide is dangerous is what you keep outside of borders that you don't internalize and so on. So building on this, um, you talk about, or the three of you talk about, quote unquote, boundary work. So can someone um, define what that is and then explain what exclusion, solidarities and transformations are in terms of in this context? Well, I think I should defer to Melanie because uh, you're the best on that, Melanie. <laughs> Tell us what boundary work is. Well, boundary work is, is sort of comes out of the sociological tradition and, 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 and the idea that we at borders is where, you know, a world in which it's just the inside and the outside where um, every, because the, being in the inside means you're safe and you're, being, being safe means nothing's changing, right? So a border is a way to sort of um, bound yourself away from uh, the, the dangers of change. But a boundary work then is a place where people get together and figure out how to make, how to make the future. Uh, and where that, 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 that place where people sort of bridge across boundaries and those transgressions are the way in which, those are the creative ways in which people and this is, I think, is what we get explore in the chapters is both the way in which people create home as a place of safety, a place of identity, place of solidarity, as well as these sort of transgressions of borders where people are creating the new worlds, um, the new homes, and um, the new the, the future uh, of, of all of us together. Yeah, you know, we tend, yeah. We, we tend to think of uh, borders as uh, solid or impermeable, and there's certainly some in the political world that want to make them like that. Uh, and yet borders are, are membranes. Uh, and so it's what passes through those membranes that becomes very interesting. And like in any sort of a, a membrane, there's a process that transforms whatever passes through those borders. And so I think a lot of what we are interested in is precisely that question of what happens when borders are crossed. Uh, more so maybe than what borders are. Although we did spend a lot of time thinking about the ways in which hard and fast borders make a difference to the ways uh, that the inside and the outside are defined, like Melanie was talking about. And this is Matt. I would say that um, the other thing that really informed the the volume and uh, the two symposia that led up to the book is that we were embracing what had been a constant in... um, Latino Chicano studies, which is borderland studies. Um, this is best defined by Gloria Anzaldúa's uh, La Frontera, uh, her book um, about the borderlands. And basically, for in specific ethnic Mexicans, they've been very comfortable with the notion of border crossing, that it is endemic to who we are. And um, we were trying to uh, embrace this notion of border crossing 
uh, both in terms of who does the work, but also in terms of how we consume the food that we eat. Um, I think today uh, this this issue is more necessary than ever uh, with the kind of anxiety that we're experiencing as a society with regards to immigrants. So in many ways, I feel like this book ministers to a society that is um, in, quite simply sick uh, from uh, anxieties of, of border crossers and border crossing foods. Yeah, a specific example of this, um, the, the body as a metaphor for America, is in the intro, and, and you talk about, which I found really interesting, um, how our definition of quote-unquote good food really depends on this hard, fast boundary. But um, Matt, can you talk a bit about how um, that's not so much the case, especially in regards to the membrane? Yeah, well, what was interesting to me as I looked out about in terms of the food that we're eating and and taking note, taking stock of the food movement that we've been living through for the last decade or more is that it was a growing valorization of eating local and to try to grow your food on uh, for yourself. Um, from our point of view, that is a privilege and a fiction at the same time. So there are certainly people that are able to uh, have the time, have the land, um, have the resources uh, to either raise their food or buy their food um, at a farmer's market, which is usually more expensive and more precious. But for the vast majority of us, um, we're eating conventional agriculture. We're going to a supermarket, if we're lucky that we have a supermarket near our home, and um, we don't have those choices. So for us, we were really trying to uh, get comfortable with um, the kind of globalized system that we have and then interpret what that actually means. Um, is it a threat? I think there are some issues about uh, the globalized food system that are threatening. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the way in which food is talked about with regards to immigrants, um, we're, we're undervaluing the kinds of diversity of of cuisines and the kind of um, uh, skillful labor that's brought to us that makes um, the food that we eat possible. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's that's the ways in which we were trying to uh, kind of challenge um, the the food systems and food thinking that uh, currently uh, we live with. Yeah, I ask almost every episode, um, who really decides what we eat? Um, some have said it's the chefs or the people that work in the industry. Others have said it's those with the dollars, those who are consuming, um, those who write the food copy. But in the book, it seem, you three seem to argue that it's actually our borders that decide. So what do you guys think? Well, that, that's an, uh, an interesting question. I'm, I'm not sure that the borders decide who and what we eat, because those borders are always entangled in a whole range of social practices and social relations, social systems, mm -hmm. uh, with uh, state involvement and everything else that you can think of. And so maybe the question is uh, a slightly different one, which is, how is and is it not possible for the kinds of foods we eat to appear on our plates? What has to be there? Mm -hmm. And what role then do borders play in that? 
And uh, those are some of the questions that I think the authors in the book do a really good job of exploring, examining the ways in which certain kinds of foodstuffs were created uh, over time through agricultural experimentation that crossed borders, for example, uh, or the ways in which certain kinds of cooking techniques were created through the interactions of very, very differently placed uh, people as they entered uh, New Mexico, as it was being colonized by the United States, uh, and and maybe most particularly um, by the ways in which uh, uh, quite uh, exploited farm workers from Mexico and Central America, primarily on both the southern and the northern borders, are uh, the the systems of work that are put into place to assure that we can have milk or can uh, eat vegetables and so forth, which are deeply, deeply exploitative, yet rely on a certain kind of border policing. All of that makes it uh, possible for a certain kind of food to appear and for other things not to happen at all, like a decent life for many people. Mm-hmm. And then there's the issue of, of trade, which um, Mark Padunpat in his uh, article about Thai food in Los Angeles is just fascinating. I mean, he's, I think today, uh, free trade and NAFTA in particular was a dirty word that brought to power um, Donald Trump um, and a new uh, trade deal. Um, What's interesting in Mark's uh, article in the book is that uh, free trade made possible the Thai food that we love today um, in terms of uh, entrepreneurial Thai immigrants crossing the border into Mexico because they could the ingredients uh, in the continental U.S. and it was very difficult to get them from Thailand. So they went and contracted with Mexican producers to produce that content, uh, those ingredients for the Thai food that now uh, is all over the United States, born in Los Angeles, but in many ways born by um, the regimes of free trade and uh, by Mexican farmers on the other side of the border that made made it possible to cook that way. But I think that the idea that borders do affect what you eat is also an important uh, point in the book. And I would, I would take, look at, in, in particular, um, for example, Mary Murphy's work on where, where she's talking about a place on the border of Canada where people weren't even thinking of themselves as two different countries until World War One. that is a global war, um, comes about and, um, and differences in terms of how food is being treated by their nations creates a, a, a sense of um, a, a distinction between the two uh, countries in this what's basically a neighborhood at the border. Um, uh, another one is the the um, uh, Mary Goldwater Dilley's chapter, where in uh, in which is about advert you know the advertising of quinoa in the United States is uh, all about indigeneity. But if you go to um, the uh, areas where quinoa is grown. Um, they don't want to be seen as they, they don't they don't want to think of themselves as indigenous. They want to think of themselves as peasants, and so there are these ways in which um, borders do to create these um, these distinctions that uh, uh, end up affecting what people eat. 
So uh, Chrissing was on the show a few episodes ago, and he kind of warned me of, um, I guess, the power, the sway of nostalgia in hindering change and creating a maybe unrealistic attachment to authenticity. And so um, what I found in the stories provided in this book was that um, food or nostalgic foods kind of provided a way to reconnect with a lot of um, foods from childhood or foods from home countries. And so can you guys talk about that kind of contrast? Yeah, this is Matt. Throughout the book, there's um, instances of uh, immigrants struggling to capture what they feel they have lost um, in their migration. So, uh, for example, um, Jose Vasquez uh, writes about the workers that are cooking in um, kind of mom-and-pop restaurants in Chicago, uh, and they're trying to recreate uh, the foods that were familiar to them, not only for themselves, but for uh, the immigrant communities that they're uh, providing food to. Um, and then what erupts is this um, uh, these huge disagreements about uh, what constitutes an authentic mole. Um, and what's interesting is there's these phone calls that are going back across the border to mother or grandma asking, well, what's the ingredient? And often the ingredient is uh, something inauthentic like Coca-Cola. Um, and so what's so fascinating is that uh, what we see is these, these debates of authenticity um, are happening um, tr- transborderly, and they're also happening uh, between these migrants who have different definitions of what, what authenticity is. And you also see it in Meredith Abarca's chapter about culinary subjectivity, and this she it's that that chapter is is sort of her search for her own family's background by the fact that they ate um, foods that is um, sweet potatoes that are not t- typical of the Mexican diet, but so she's sort of re- reclaiming the sort of Afro part of the sort of Afro-Latina or Latinos culinary subjectivity. And, um, and, and that's, uh, you know, that story of, you know, how did, how did these, um, these uh, root vegetables get into our, our family's diet um, is, is, a, is an interesting uh, story that she tells. Mm-hmm. And it's literally, um, a representation of Africa in Mexican food, which Mexicans have not always been comfortable with um, the blackness of, of Mexican identity. And it's through that exploration and in, in her grandfather's um, literally is his palate. You know, what, what excites him, what makes him happy is this sweet potato. And this is a product really of um, the the movement of uh, potatoes from sweet potatoes from uh, Africa to to Mexico, and that's the way in which they've um, come into the Mexican cuisine. That is now far north of the border. Uh, well, not that far north of the border. She's in El Paso, but it is north of the border. Mm-hmm. Um, this is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We're going to take a quick break, and I think we're going to pick up right um, back with that sweet potato statement. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. 
Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MoFad encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MoFad Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history, and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MoFad's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dave Arnold, and I'm the host of Cooking Issues here on Heritage Radio Network. Every week, I answer listeners' questions on the latest innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients in the food world. Have a question about hot-rodding your oven to make great pizza? Give us a call. Hydrocolloid, sous vide, liquid nitrogen? No problem. You can find Cooking Issues wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Great. This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We're back. And so we were just talking about um, the sweet potato, and I, I wanted to build on that. Um, last week, Paul Friedman and I discussed his book, 10 Restaurants That Changed America, a list of 10 uh, restaurants that he identified completely changed how we eat in America. Um, and what came up in that discussion is our very slippery um, and kind of useless definition of American cuisine. And so how is, quote, unquote, American cuisine come to be understood in Food Across Borders, by which voices, and how did you select these? I don't, I don't know precisely uh, how we came to know what American cuisine was or anything, but there's some really fascinating stories about how American cuisine has been constructed in Food Across Borders. Uh, Kellen Bacher tells the story of provisioning uh, soldiers, particularly in the Pacific during World War II, which is a story of logistics and, uh, and lots of other things. But it's also a story of the army trying to decide what constituted real American food. And um, to uh, not to put, put too fine of a point on it, basically failing, uh, in part because American food is so, uh, had been so highly regionalized. And yet there was a need for a very, very deep standardization in this. And in some ways, out of that then came the kinds of things that uh, mid-20th century, particularly white people, took as standard American food. I'm not sure it's American cuisine, but it was standard American food. No, yeah, you touched on that um, irony, or I guess, paradox that I was yeah. trying to get out. So ding, ding, nice. Yeah. <laughs> And then the actual literal process was that we had a notion that we weren't the only ones thinking about borders and food. We simply put a call out. Uh, we also had the support of the Clement Center at uh, Southern Methodist University and uh, a little program that I ran at Arizona State called Comparative Border Studies that was going to finance two symposium, symposia in, in two different places, one in Scottsdale, Arizona, and one in Taos, New Mexico. Um, and what we got was uh, some familiar topics. Chili's, Chili's is uh, on the cover, and Chili's uh, has crossed the border. And I think we have some really interesting stories about how the chili was um, really a, a, a 
a product of not just um, seeds coming from Mexico into New Mexico, but also this interesting guy, Fabian Garcia, who goes across to actually do the science and, and lift the seeds and, and cultivate them in, in New Mexico. So chilies was really important. Um, milk was another one uh, dealing with the northern border. And um, uh, there's a couple of really great articles about, about milk. Um, but to say that we actually had a vision of like which foods we were going to cover, it just kind of materialized through that call. Mm-hmm. And I think the part of the sort of the idea of the definition of American food is um, I think that a, 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 the, the article by Michael Wise is very interesting because it is through um, this this the sort of reclaiming of a Blackfeet uh, food uh, uh, system in um, the territories they uh, were living in, uh, that in on their reservations to come up with a way that they they were trying they were trying to Americanize the Blackfeet, and in the process of the Blackfeet retaking their food sovereignty, they are doing this in a system that at one time had been buffalo but in the case, you know but then they were they were using cattle um, so there's a a way in which people are taking back their own food systems in these but also um, still being an american food system mm-hmm. yeah that um, that perfectly leads um, into what I wanted to get into. We know a lot. I think we're familiar with um, our northern or southern borders. But we don't necessarily think about our internal borders here in America. So can, can you actually talk a bit more about the Blackfeet um, story? Well, I think the, the special thing about Mike's uh, Mike Weiss's um, article is that um, there's an assumption, first of all, that Native Americans um, – hunted buffalo and that 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 was their um protein source but in fact they not only embraced uh cattle um ranching but they did it collectively which was really um bucking the system this is a period of time when they're trying to break up uh tribal governments they're trying to individualize uh producers and the blackfeet in montana refused to do it that way. They found not only that um, they could farm collectively and, and pull their resources, but they could do it uh, successfully. Um, and that really stuck in the craw of um, Bureau of uh, India Affairs agents who um, you know, just didn't approve of it because it was counter to the American way. It's not just that um, this was different from what they expected Indians to do, but they were actually doing it differently than the ways that were prescribed by um, an American capitalist system. Mm-hmm. At the risk of stealing some of uh, Melanie's thunder, because this is usually her strong suit, uh, but uh, the, the uh, borders that um, kind of define internal differences within the United States are not only geographical borders, they're also borders of gender and of class and of race. And uh, uh, the stories uh, in the book from uh, New Mexico are actually quite interesting in this regard, in, uh, which show how um, uh, white, largely upper-class women learned to cook New Mexican 
uh, and in many ways pervert the whole cuisine, but in other ways create something else that we come to take for granted as a, 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 a New Mexican uh, cuisine. And in doing so, they both, um, I suppose, transgress and very much reinforce the kinds of social borders that existed in uh, New Mexico uh, during its time of American colonization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought I, I actually laughed aloud because I read that, um, or you had written that there was this initial rejection of Mexican food and then this kind of re-education through Brick Bayless, which just seems completely wrong, but you've got to give credit where it's due. So can you actually talk a bit about that anecdote uh, specifically? Well, I think it's just interesting. It's, a, it's an arc that we cover. Um, you know, we don't talk too much about Bayless, and I don't want to forget Diana Kennedy as well, who I, I actually like more than Rick Bayless, but pick your white uh, Mexican uh, chef, um, if you will. But what I was interested in was uh, the ways in which uh, in the pre-conquest period, I'm talking about the Mexican War, pre-1848, chilies were thought to be distasteful, right? This an indication of the um, barely civilized people living in, in, in the borderlands. Um, and then by the early 19th, uh, excuse me, early 20th century, they're actually cultivating chilies to try to perfect it. And by the mid to late 20th century, the chili becomes the state um um, food uh, for food item for, for New Mexico. New Mexico, you can't think of New Mexico without thinking about chilies. And then you get to the late 20th century and the, the period that we're now in now, and Mexican food is the most, arguably the most American food that we eat today as a nation. And uh, that really kind of catapulted someone like Rick Bayless into the stardom that he has now. And it's interesting that his... Uh, restaurant, which I just ate at in Chicago airport, is La Frontera. Um, so we've, we've kind of come all the way uh, back from um, this notion that uh, the, the borderlands is a, is a place of uncivilized people uh, and chili eaters to now we are, as a nation are chili eaters and love it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to, uh, because my I'm actually from a border crossing um, family as well, but it was the other border and it was French Canada. Um, and we don't have a chapter about this in the book, but um, when I go back to my old French Canadian neighborhood, there's one restaurant that's still there, and um, and and I'll go there and I'll I'll. I'll I'll ask for tortier, which is the French Canadian pork pie, and they don't think of it as that anymore. They call it pork pie, <laughs> um, and and so you can sort of see, you know, I can sort of watch my, you know, the the sort of very French Canadian neighborhood that I grew up in becoming, um, you know, very much sort of a, a different place that's kind of forgetting the roots of 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 the food that's still there, um, but uh, not really recognized. Um, and I think that, that it's interesting to see how um, that the sort of the ways in which um, um, you know Mexican food has become this uh, this really American food. And, and um, 
given the name of uh, Rick Bayless's restaurant, Frontera Grill, um, he's indebted to Chicano Studies so much that I think he should uh, give some of his money to one of our <laughs> campuses and start yeah. a, uh, <laughs> a fellowship <laughs> in, uh, and call it the Ansel Dua Fellowship or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah, I think there is also... Um, the opposite of that happening as well, where some foods that may not have um, so much of a I don't know historical or culture, cultural background is suddenly imbued with such. Um, last week we talked about rice aroni and how it was really marketed as a San Franciscan product. So mm-hmm. why um, why the need to reduce something to just a pork pie versus give rice aroni this big San Franciscan grand background? <laughs> well, uh, I, 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 you know, I think that there's the, the, the frontier means a lot of things in America, and uh, and so you know whether you know it, 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 and I think that the frontier is sort of that place of change, and um, and, and so you know California sort of represents. The, this, I mean, I think that that you know, San Franciscans didn't really think about rice aroni a whole lot, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so you know, the idea that that you know you're you're getting through 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 your eating, you're getting to be a little bit adventurous, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, by because you know the California was like the place of. Uh, uh, you know the dreams and the future and so on and so forth. Um, so you know you can see how commercial culture then you know, makes uh, the frontier a place that's attractive mm-hmm. rather than frightening. But you know, of course, the language of frontiers is also quite dangerous because the old classic definition is uh, the frontier is the meeting point of savagery and civilization, mm-hmm. and um, and that definition has not entirely disappeared. One of the reasons that we think that um, ethnic food is exotic is precisely because it is something outside of civilization uh, that's been made a bit safe for us, I suppose. Or at least that's how it's often understood. And, uh, and that question of the, the border or the frontier uh, as being a violent place has not disappeared either. The two chapters about uh, the northeastern U.S.-Canada border, or southeastern and Canadian perspective, uh, are quite telling in that regard. Both of them are about the ongoing violences that uh, construct the northern borderlands uh, here, and, and they're immensely violent places. Uh, and yet what comes out of those are the most mundane of foods that we could imagine, milk. Uh, and anyway, sorry, Melanie, again. But... Um, <laughs> But in, in some ways, you know, stuff that we just think is just, you know, unremarkable in all kinds of ways. And yet the, the landscapes within which uh, that milk is produced, at least in uh, the northern part of the United States, is incredibly remarkable. And as I said, remarkably violent because of the way that it's policed, because of special laws that govern uh, what, what the uh, uh, immigration uh, services can do in, uh, within 30 and 100 miles of the border. And so when we think about frontiers, we have to think of them not only in that sense of some place that's exciting, uh, but some, uh, but as places that are ideologically laden and often quite violent. So that, mm, yeah. that violence sometimes forges uh, 
new innovation, new um, ways of addressing that plight. Um, and I would say that the work that Teresa Morris does, not just in this book, but in her forthcoming book, um, Life on the Other Border, about migrant justice in part, this organization that was born of the Fair Food Program, uh, it's kind of connected to the Fair Food Program and coalition um, that was created by the Coalition of Immokalee Workers in Florida. Um, dairy workers up here who are extremely vulnerable, extremely uh, surveilled and, and threatened by ICE have united with um, Ben and Jerry's to create the Milk with Dignity program, which is in some ways creating a shield um, against uh, that vulnerability, that those um, those agents and uh, creating a space for them to kind of reinvent what farm worker justice looks like. So out of some of that pressure uh, is forged a new way of thinking about uh, things like justice for farm workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I brought on this um, this coffee roaster a few seasons ago, and I was asking him what to make of all these city of origin or country of origin labels. Um, I mean, it's great to know that X person made this on this farm, but how is the consumer to use that knowledge? Yeah, country of origin labeling was um, part of the thing that inspired this book. We, we had a long conversation about um, the fact that country of origin labeling is supposed to signify that um, if it's not made in the U.S., then it may be dangerous. It may be uh, not good for you, um, if not good for the economy. And so what was interesting about that is that um, we are the ones that have embraced uh, GMOs. We have been the ones that have found um, poisons in our food. Um, we are the ones that have relaxed organic uh, uh, standards um, so that they mean nothing. And so it's it's kind of funny in some ways that uh, we create something like the uh, country of origin labeling to protect the nation, and yet, in fact, we're we're the ones that uh, are unleashing all of these things on the global food system that um, other countries don't want. Um, Europe is extremely dubious of American products and uh, have passed laws to really uh, um, surveil and 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 um, uh, evaluate those those food products coming from the U.S. because of the the ways in which we uh, cultivate food in this nation. Mm-hmm. That's really funny because um, when I look at those labels, I had initially thought the purpose was to kind of unite or to I don't know empathize with the farmers' experience and maybe send a silent thank you to whoever created this product for you and it was kind of like an illusion of locavorism. So I was hoping maybe Don, you could talk a bit about how locavorism is actually all an illusion. <laughs> all an illusion. <laughs> all an illusion. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if it's all an illusion, mm-hmm. uh, except um, at, a, at a relatively abstract level. That um, that foods and foodstuffs are are constantly a product of all kinds of processes that are necessarily extra local, uh, from climate to uh, the the labor regimes and labor relations through which they're produced, um, and there there can still be good arguments for um, for eating more locally, for uh, trying to eat around uh, instead of um, right at the heart of the industrialized 
food systems that are at work. And one of the things that's very interesting about the country of origin labeling story is that early on, in the 1990s in particular, uh, a lot of American growers, uh, beef growers in particular, were adamantly opposed to country of origin uh, sorts of things. The big meat packing plants were especially uh, opposed, but so were big meat growers because they were afraid of what it would do to U.S. exports leaving uh, the United States if there became a global regime of country of origin uh, ex uh, exports for just all the reasons that um, Matt was mentioning there. And, and so there are these very, very strong forces that are working to both create and to keep our food systems as uh, global and as globalized. And just as there are very good reasons to try and uh, cut around that or to work around it, uh, there also are, are, might be good reasons to uh, work in it or work with it. There's a lot to be gained from... Um, from globalized the, from from the the exchange of globalized food food knowledge, for example, there's a lot to be gained from the globalization of um, of labor standards that are enforceable across places. There's a lot to be gained from uh, the globalization of good uh, food safety practices. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not one that's all all that interested in, in saying you know, local is good and global is bad or something like that. But I am interested in thinking about what are the social relations and power relations that are at work in transforming our um, foods and food products into what shows up on our plates. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of different ways to think about localization and, and uh, as, a, as a social movement. Um, a lot of the sort of critiques of localization have been about, you know, sort of how expensive farmers markets are and that only people with uh, a lot of money can shop there and so on. And, and, and I've certainly been one of the people who has uh, been critical uh, about um, those things. But I, but I, I really try to make a, a, a clear case um, to distinguish from this idea that localization is bad and I, I've never make that case. A case that I argue is that you can't assume just because something's local that it's just. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and there was a, a lot of sort of assumptions around in, in this sort of localization movement that as soon as you um, grow your food, you know, eat fo food that's local, that you have created a more just food system. And at the time, I was at University of California, Santa Cruz, and um, this is an area that has uh, a, a lot of um, inequality in terms of um, how how people grow food, uh, and um, and and but there's a lot of local food there, and to automatically assume that if you eat food within the county, it was going to be automatically a, a more just food system. Just you know, I think there was a there was a long way to go there between you know if we just localize, we'll have a, a more just system. On the other hand, what I'm seeing nowadays in my work on looking at gentrification in the Lower East Side uh, of, of uh, Manhattan is that the people who were the most activist around issues of gentrification on the Lower East Side are also people who were the most activist around urban gardens in, the, in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. and, and so the, the, the sort of ways in which... Um, 
in in these cases, the localization, you know, localization uh, food movement there has been definitely uh, one in which uh, people who were uh, part of the the urban garden movement are are also part of the social justice movement. Mm -hmm. Amongst the things you can't assume with local as well is that it's healthy, that it's environmentally sound, and that it's cruelty free. Mm -hmm. These are all things that we think we want in our food. And we go to the farmer's market and we think that we're buying those products that have those qualities, but we really don't know. And in fact, if you read um, about the, the meat industry, um, unless it's unless you know how it's being slaughtered, where it's being slaughtered, you're not quite sure that um, that meat is coming to you um, having not been tortured. Um, so, you know, for example, I teach uh, Jonathan Saffron Force eating animals, which is kind of contrary to uh, everything that I practice and, and believe because I'm, I'm actually raising cows in Vermont um, for beef. Um, but I think it's there, that I, there's a lot of agreement between he and I, even though he's a, a vegan and I'm a carnivore, uh, because I, I think we should know um, how our uh, meat is raised and how it's slaughtered and where it, it is, uh, um, is processed. And we can't assume that about local uh, food sources. So to wrap up, um, if the book proves that our, bound, or our borders are more membranes than hard, fast boundaries, how and why do the ones leading our food system benefit from this continued belief of us versus them or our food versus their food or these stresses of authenticity? Well, I think I guess. We, um, one of the things that um, we found is that what, that borders are the way to, I'm sorry, <coughs> I'm sorry, borders are, are somebody else should talk as I do. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll jump in. I'm not entirely sure what Melanie was uh, going to say there. Um, but yeah, some of the things that we've found is uh, that borders are, of course, contested spaces. Uh, even as they define the inside and the outside and so forth. And the very nature of those contestations are important to understand if we're going to think about what could possibly be a more just food system. As long as we live in a world in which people think that hard and fast borders are the means to keep them out and us in, we will never have a food, a just food system because those who want to bring other workers in whose uh, price uh, for, for wages and so forth are considerably lower um, will find ways to recruit and to bring people across the borders and then to deeply, deeply exploit. Mm -hmm. and, and all of the rhetoric about hardened borders is only going to advance that project, uh, much to the benefit, uh, even if there might be short-term crises in the system along the way, but much to the benefit of those uh, who can make the most money from our food system. Mm -hmm. So uh, part of what we have to um, think about, if we are going to think about uh, a world defined by more just food practices, is a world that is more f uh, defined by more just border policies. Mm -hmm. So, and I would say raising walls or 
having labels on quote unquote foreign foods is not going to make us safe. It's not going to make our food source environmentally friendly. It's going to be deeper knowledge about how our food is produced and what is sacrificed in its production, whether that food is is being produced uh, beyond the borders or uh, even within, and especially maybe within our borders, uh, because we have more control over the laws that govern its production. So what we're trying to do is is draw attention to the fact that uh, borders are real, um, but the kind of border fascination and obsession that we have um, can blind us to the things we really should be looking at, which is knowing where our food comes from and getting back in touch with how food is produced. So as before I choked, what I want to say, my apologies, I have a bad cold, um, is that uh, the, the, the reasons for borders have an awful lot to do with fear and, um, and this idea of, of danger and that went, but it's fear of the future and fear of change. And so the, the, the when we see these, um, when, when these, these times when people are afraid of change, then they start talking about putting borders up and making them stronger. Uh, and uh, and then, but we all know, and I think the chapters in these this book, which are historical chapters about how borders were transgressed and created history, is that we can see that um, the the sort of crossing of the membranes are you know are are the way in which the future gets created, and to try to um, stop that is um, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. It's a fool's errand. <laughs> We've been discussing Food Across Borders, um, a, a collection of stories edited by Matt Garcia, Melanie Dupuy, and Don Mitchell. Thank you three so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Coral. Yep, thanks. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.